The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club for the month of November. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words Correspondent, and I'm joined today in the New York studio by Slate book critic Laura Miller. Hey, Laura. Hi, Katie. And by our chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, coming in from D.C. Hi, Jamel. Hello. So it's a pretty raw moment, but we continue to believe here at Slate.com that works of imagination and empathy are worth highlighting in dark political times. And I think that the two books we'll be discussing today resonate especially powerfully with what's happening in the country right now. So those books are The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead and Underground Airlines by Ben Winters. Uh, taking slavery and race more broadly as their theme, these are books that reimagine the past or contrive a parallel present in ways that shed light on our actual past and present. And I thought maybe we could start with The Underground Railroad and then move on to Underground Airlines and then hold them up side by side, if that sounds good to you guys. Sounds great. Awesome. Um, So I guess the really interesting uh, premise of the Underground Railroad is that it takes the idea of an Underground Railroad literally and instead of having a network of black and white people um, who support abolition, uh, ferrying slaves from slave states to northern free states, uh, you actually have an underground railroad with uh, conductors and tracks and uh, cars. And I wonder if either of you have an opening thought on why Whitehead would make that choice and what it does to the reader to sort of literalize that metaphor. Um, Well, I'll just jump in. I mean, I think part of it is that he's always been obsessed with New York City. I mean, he spent his youth here and he wrote a book about walking through New York City. And so I think part of it is just, I I mean, I believe he said that as a child, he sort of was confused about it and thought it might be a real railroad. And so a novelist will often take some sort of mistake or dream or image from their past and and spin a whole book out of it. But I think it it makes I mean the important thing that it does is it signals that it's that this isn't really a historical novel and that it's not supposed to be historically accurate. And I also think that the different places that Cora stops along the way I mean, to me, what it also reminded me of was like a, like a, the worst theme park ride <laughs> ever. Like the idea that you would go from like a one diorama representing one facet of white supremacy or slavery to another, um, by this kind of train has this sort of surreal theme park quality, which I think is echoed in the part where Cora is sort of in a living diorama. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me because I think what it did for me, Laura, when you said that it was sort of like a misapprehension from childhood, that resonated with my sense of it, which is that it's this very sort of innocent and childlike misunderstanding that is then used ironically in contrast to the incredible visceral brutality of the rest of the of the book. And I think the kind of interesting way that he deploys fantastical elements here is basically to show the reader like here I am going to craft this entire alternate reality for you but the craziest part is the most surreal the most sort of delirious and baroque and 
horrifying things that happen in this world are things that happened in our world too. Like the really, the really extreme and fantastical brutality is something that, you know, we're familiar with from history. And I thought that was a very effective and sort of new way to, um, to use fantasy. Yeah. Jamil, I'm curious to ask you because you did uh, a huge series of podcasts for Slate Plus on the history of slavery. How you reading this, you probably know more about the history of slavery than we do. How that, that knowledge of that history affected the experience of reading the novel when he departed from it, when he was true to it. Did you, did you feel that that gave you a particular insight into what he might be trying to do? I'm not sure if it gave me a particular insight in what he might be trying to do, um, except, I mean, the, the exception I'll say is that's one of the things we talk about in the History of Slavery podcast, which listeners of this, of course, should sign up for Slate Plus and, and, and purchase. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> cross, it is really great. Yeah. yeah. Cross promotion. Um, one of the things that we touch on is, and we do this in the conversation with a, with a historian named Ed Baptist at Cornell, is the uh, idea of slaves and slavery as commodities um, and of the the techniques masters and slave owners took to increase the productivity of their um, of their enslaved people. And so especially early on in the book, the, the, the descriptions of the violence done to enslaved people um, in an effort to make them more productive felt felt like a, a like a dramatic illustration of exactly what Baptist describes. Um, and I think it helps understand or, or helps there's a way in which the language with which we use to talk about slavery obscures the essential violence of it all. Um, yeah. And I think that what Whitehead was trying to do uh, in the book is to bring that essential violence to light uh, and to show that even for even even in the most benign situations, um, there is an undercurrent of threat and menace uh, at all at all turns. Yeah, I mean. I was personally shocked. Like I had to put the book down uh, multiple times. Uh, parts of it made me cry just by how brutal some of the descriptions of torture were. I mean, you had people being whipped mercilessly and then their wounds washed out with pepper water. You had people being roasted alive in stocks. Like this was, it was like garishly violent. And I, I think Probably, I mean, certainly that helped make the book indelible and probably added to the art of it uh, just by forcing home a truth so powerfully. But I wonder if if you guys felt the lurid violence helped the book or hindered it or I, I just, mean, I, I mean, he if you've read his previous book, Zone One, it also has an incredible amount of violence in it. Uh, it's a zombie story. Though. Yeah. Um, and so to me, it maybe wasn't as sort of startling, I guess, like horror is something that he I mean, I think that 
one of the things that he does is incorporate something historical into a kind of horror framework. It really, the book really sort of shimmers back and forth between feeling like historical fiction and feeling like this kind of hallucinatory thing. And this is actually one one of the reasons I asked you that question before, Jamel, was I've had this weird experience with this book with people that I know who are who are educated, smart people are unaware of the which parts of it are like they think that there really was this town during the period of slavery, you know, before the Civil War, where there was this sort of model town like the one in South Carolina. And then they think there was like a regimen of total extermination. Like they think that 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 all of that stuff is supposed to be historically accurate. I mean, I have encountered many people who think that that it, that the book is meant to explain to you what exactly what the facts historical facts were and um i'm just wondering one of the reasons why i asked you about that was do you have a concern about hmm. the the way that the sort of allegorical or ahistorical like some some of it is just anachronistic like similar things happened but in in different places does that trouble you at all either of you i guess you know, I don't, I don't think it troubles me, although I, I have certainly had the experience of talking to people, um, grown adults, uh, grown adult Americans who believed that the Underground Railroad was an actual railroad. Um, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's a real thing. Um, <laughs> so I guess yeah. if you're hearing that a lot, then you're just like yeah. not shocked by, by what I just said. Right. I, so I, I, I think there's always a risk in any sort of fiction about slavery, um, whether it's this book, whether it is series like Underground on uh, television, whether it is movies. Um, there's always a risk to that people take it in as literal history, um, as something that uh, conforms to the facts. And I kind of just take that as um, sort of a necessary risk. I think what this book does in giving us the internal lives of enslaved people, of showing some of the truth of enslavement is more valuable um, than the chance that, uh, you know, someone will come away with uh, insane ideas. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and it's worth, I suppose that's a good point. And it's worth yeah. noting that even those insane ideas are happening in the context of a work that is like very unflinching about what all of this means on a thematic level. So um, yeah. it's not as if this is like, you know, neo-Confederate propaganda uh, where those insane ideas are like actively pernicious. These are ones that you can kind of just gently correct. Yeah. I mean, it did strike me as a morality play, not only in with that diorama uh, scene where Cora, who's the main character, she goes to North Carolina and there's this settlement that seems to be about trying to uplift the No, that's in South Carolina. Oh, oh, that's South Carolina? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, South Carolina, there's a community and and all of the freed slaves um, and the, I guess, the black people who are born into freedom are part of a community and they're being educated and yet there's this very ominous and sinister uh, medical establishment in the background that is, you know, pursuing ideas about uh, strategic sterilization um, and all kinds of scary shit. And um, it's this um, the eugenics movement mm -hmm. of the late 19th and early 20th century, which um, 
attempted to sort of sterilize all different kinds of people that were considered undesirable. It's this way that he folds a later thing, or you could even see something like the story of Henrietta Lack, where um, the medical establishment just uses African-Americans or has used and perhaps still does, God only knows, in if they were less than human. He makes that happen at the same time as slavery to show you that there's a, there's a continuity between those things, even though there's a, this layer on top of sort of like we're trying to make society better. Yeah, and that's actually, um, unfortunately, in today's landscape where we're forced to suddenly differentiate between a white supremacist and a white nationalist, <laughs> these various shades and nuances of racism, um, it, it, it struck me that, you know, South Carolina is uh, white supremacy, right? So you've got uh, blacks and whites coexisting, and yet there's a rigid racial hierarchy that places whites in front of blacks. And then when you go to North Carolina, where there's been a systematic effort to purge the state of black people, that's uh, white nationalism, right? So like a nation of whites with no other, no impure elements or whatever. Um, and it's and it, and it's really striking that he has Cora li- hiding in an attic, uh, just like Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's also this weird overlay of other types of sort of genocidal nightmare, just like replaying. Jamel, do you... Sorry, I'm not <laughs> sure where to go with this. We're all just stewing in our right. misery. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I, I think part of the, I mean, I, we maybe are stewing in our misery, but I think also pro- part of it is also that the book um, is so uh, affective, right? That like there's, it's just taking in the the mood and the feeling, um, uh, the the fear and the pain. For me, at least, you know, as a reader, I kind of stewed on that a bit more than I did the um like particular like particular details. Yeah, I think that's a good point that this is sort of a this is an alternate past or an alternative past and yet morally and emotionally it seems like our past whereas I think you could argue when we got to uh underground airlines the target is more sort of complicity and complacency but there's not a sense that there's not a sense of equivalence. There's not a sense that that world equals our world just through a different lens. I think that world is darker than our present, although who knows now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We should all have liquor in here. That's what we need. (laughs) I actually, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about Mabel, who is um, Cora's mother. And she's kind of like this optimistic dream throughout the, throughout the book. There's this idea that, or everyone thinks that she has escaped throughout the book. And she's like the one person who makes it from the horrible plantation to the north. And, and if you look at the rest of the book, the body count is absurdly high. The practically everyone who helps Cora die meet some horrible end um, and yet like floating above all of that is this memory of her mother who eluded the horrible bloodhound slave catcher and found her way and yet at the very very end of the book where we feel like we cannot possibly endure anymore uh, we learn that Mabel 
was on her way uh, north, and then she decided to turn around and sort of give hope to her daughter instead, and she was bitten by a snake and died. And that is the reason that none of the slave catchers were ever able to find her. And I just wonder, what did you guys... Well, I mean, for Cora, the idea that her mother has left her and... I mean, she hates her mother Mm -hmm. for leaving her, which just puts her in this impossible position because how can you stay, but then how can you leave? And it's a weird sort of relief to her to know that her mother just didn't walk away from her and never look back. But And and that is also a theme that comes up in underground airlines. It's like once you have yours, more or less, you know, and it makes these things sort of brings a universality to them. You know, what does it mean to be the one who got away? Mm -hmm. And what is your responsibility to those who are left behind? And what can you even do, you know, often in a world where there's not that much that you can do and how impossible it is to ever really get away because you can't stop forgetting about the people that you left behind. Yeah. And Jamil, was that like an issue for actual slaves who escaped? Did Were they sort of possessed with the memory of those that they left behind and, and guilty about not being able to help them? Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I think is hard for people, and I certainly, I mean, I'll be completely honest, it's something I did not really begin to conceive of and think about until I started really more diving more deeply into the history of slavery and experiences of individual slaves. But the thing to remember, right, is that let's say, I mean, let's not even, not, not even thinking about escape. Let's simply say that you are an enslaved person in the Tidewater area of Virginia and one of your friends on the plantation is sold away. And that person's effectively dead. You will never see them again. You will never talk to them again. You'll never hear from them again. You'll never hear news of them. Um, even if they are only a couple hundred miles away, they are effectively, for all intents and purposes, they're dead. And I think for people who escaped, it was much the same way. Unless they managed to manumit uh, family and that there are instances of this happening usually closer to the coastal south in Maryland um, in Virginia for example uh, there are more instances uh, near the cities pretty much where where enslaved people um, some some owners allowed enslaved people to work in cities as tradespeople and craftsmen and um, there are rare slave owners who allowed um, uh, their enslaved people to purchase their freedom and that of others. So unless you're one of the small, very small minority of enslaved people in that circumstance, if you escaped, um, you'll, you're likely never seeing your family again. You're never seeing your friends again. Um, there are many stories of people who escaped and essentially they started new families. Um, they were never going to hear about the people they left behind again. And one of the, you know, some of the most moving stories in the aftermath of the Civil War are of enslaved people, formerly enslaved people at this point, scouring the South for their relatives mass sort of migrations of black people from state to state to state looking for children, for husbands, for wives, for brothers, for sisters, for mothers, for fathers, because there is no expectation that they would ever see these people again. And how did the people who were left behind feel about the people who escaped? Was that a, did they envy them? Did they resent them? Did they, do we have any record of 
of someone like Cora and how she would have felt about her mother leaving? We, I don't, I, I, I'm not aware of too many records on that score, although I, I'm, I think they exist. I think my hunch is that it's a mix of feelings. It is, it is, um, a sort of gratefulness that someone could get out. Um, it is resentment. It is all of the things that I think you would expect if you knew that your, you know, the only way you were going to escape uh, bondage was likely death. Yeah. And I mean, that's the sort of, um, sort of anti hopeful message of a lot of this book. I mean, especially when you have Mabel who represents the fantasy of escape, um, you find out that that's a delusion. And I think actually one character, Lander, uh, gives a really interesting speech towards the end where he talks about how basically everything is a delusion. There is no freedom. There's only temporary sanctuary. And the idea that you can escape slavery and its scars will never fade is a delusion. And then he says, sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. And I guess I wanted to ask both of you guys whether you think that Colson Whitehead agrees with that assessment, whether you think that this is a profoundly hopeless book about the possibility of escape and freedom or whether maybe there is there is more possibility than Lander is admitting in that speech. Well, I mean, I'll just say as someone who's read almost all of his other work that I think that you know, race is always an element in, in everything that he writes. But what he doesn't have as much of in this book is the idea that um, of the way that black people have created a culture of their own to sustain them in these circumstances and that and the value of that. And then also this ambivalence of like this, 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 this culture and identity created under this duress. And then the sort of modern challenge of moving away from it, like in the, in the novel John Henry days, the narrator is this kind of ne'er-do-well cultural journalist who's just always going off on junkets for, you know, this is before the internet when he, when journalism paid better and he's just kind of going, always going off on these ridiculous press junkets and he's, he's not really having any effect on the world. And then he gets involved in this commemoration of John Henry in this town and he has to sort of cope with the, the difference between this heroic, larger than life, tragic but larger than life demonstration of like human courage and and the human spirit and he's just you know like annoyed that he's not <laughs> in business class or whatever so um so he you know he's often you know this there's not a lot of humor in underground railroad and almost all of his other books are are pretty funny even zone zone 1 which is has a lot of well zombies in it yeah so um so you know, I don't, I don't, I think that this book is, has a kind of, um, meta, almost metaphysical quality to it. Mm -hmm. And, and that, well, while I agree with Jamel that the, the really visceral descriptions of, of, of this experience of fear and pain of bondage is there, the, it's also about a kind of state of mind rather than like about the situation of, of all black people. In America forever. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
I mean, and Jamel, I'd be curious to hear um, what you think about this, but I sort of got the sense that he was doing something interesting with the idea of manifest destiny and that he was saying he was presenting a case that, you know, brutality is the law of the universe and everyone who helps Cora will die and freedom is a dream and a delusion. And he's sort of tying that to the idea that, you know, if if the Native Americans were meant to resist the white man, they would have. And if slavery wasn't meant to happen, it wouldn't have. Like this sort of faulty logic. And so he was tying the fortunes of manifest destiny as a philosophy to the pessimism that his own novel was uh, was <laughs> transmitting in a way. And the and then the fantasy. But out- isn't that that's just the ideology of the white supremacy is that this ha- this happened because it's the only way that it could happen. I guess I don't know. Does it really feel that fatalistic? I I don't know. I mean, I think that he is challenging um he's challenging manifest destiny and he keeps having characters saying that something is a lie or something is a delusion and the way of the world is terrible and he's saying that the evidence for that is all of the horrible stuff that happens. But I think that we're supposed to reject the idea of manifest destiny. And in so doing, we're also supposed to reject the idea that this is the way the world must be. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I think I think that in making that sort of juxtaposition there, um, because when you think of I mean, I think it requires like to think about the place manifest destiny plays in like real life ideology, this idea, not just that Americans or white Americans were destined to control the entire um, continent or most of it, but also this idea that we kind of exist in this Whiggish world of constant progression towards the good. I mean, in the case, in the, in the case of this current election, there's a real current of kind of optimism among people that maybe things aren't going to be so bad. You know, we always recover. We always bounce back. Um, if this is happening, it must be happening for a reason, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do think that Whitehead is, is positing that, you know, listen, that is a delusion that um, many, many people died and suffered um, and did not have to die and suffer. And the extent to which we maintain that delusion is the extent to which we obscure the fact of that suffering, which has real consequences for today. Um, it has real consequences for how we understand our place in the world. Yeah. Do you think that Whitehead chose an appropriate tone for his subject matter? For me, it felt sort of, as you said, Laura, both sort of realistic in this brute and and horrifying way, but also kind of fabular at points. Well, I think that his big influence throughout his whole career has been Ralph Ellison. Mm-hmm. And like Invisible Man, this is a book that's tragic and grotesque and also has this kind of absurdist humor to it that uh, it's very dark but um and not all of his books are quite so dark as that but um he is in he writes in a style that is not a sort of earnest straightforward style it's it he's he's really in that ellison camp of that your situation is inherently absurd and in this case it's more horrifically absurd mm-hmm. but um you're constantly being defined by forces outside of your control. And at the same time, you're not, you're always aware that they're inadequate to define you. And, 
Invisible Man is more about people making all these various claims on the Invisible Man's identity and him sort of trying to assert that he has the right to say who he is. And Cora is a bit like that. Mm-hmm. But um, but she's just in so much more of a severe situation um, that I don't I don't I don't think I think it's not that possible for him to bring that element, which is part of what he does. He also says that Gulliver's Travels is an inspiration for this book. And when Gulliver went from, you know, one land to another, each one is sort of embodied like a different thing that Swift hated about the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so and people. And that was sort of absurd. But I mean I think what Whitehead always keeps bumping up against is that the reality is just not so different right. from these ex- these exaggerated, you know, outrageous things that he comes up with that that like I said the novel does sort of like shimmer in this weird way between you thinking that is so over the top it's just so ridiculous um or so extreme or so absurd it can't really be true and yet at the same time Sometimes it was. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um so I think it's tricky just because it's really difficult to with slavery and then also with the Holocaust. They are so there's su- such extremes that it's really difficult to have more than one way of writing about them. And this was interesting because He's never really quite addressed something this extreme before. And I really liked the way that he maintained that balance between his typical sort of absurdist, ironic, sort of just, it's just the way that he sees the world and yeah. writes about it and this reality slash unreality. Well, speaking of um, whether it's possible to write about these themes in more than one way, shall we turn to our second uh, book, Underground Airlines? Um, So first thing I want to say, this is kind of extra diegetic. Um, Ben H. Winters is white. How do we feel about this? I mean, I, I, I am a literary person, and so I don't really have a problem with it. I just, I mean, that's one of the things that novelists do. And he, one of the things that reading novels does is encourage you to imagine that you can try to get inside somebody else's head. But I don't know. I'm white too. So maybe I'm not in a position to judge this. What about you, Jamel? I didn't have a problem with it. I imagine that I know when this book was announced, when folks were writing about it, there was some consternation about that, about that fact. But I'm not someone who thinks that the identity of the author necessarily has any bearing on, on the work in terms of their ability to write it. Um, if the characters are fully formed, if they are full humans, if they are not caricatures, then it doesn't particularly matter. Yeah. And I think that the controversy over this book when it was published had more to do with a sort of badly executed New York Times profile by Mm -hmm. someone who sort of presented this type of book as being unprecedented when, um, and in particular, there was also in addition to sort of like a racial dimension, there was a genre dimension where the alternate history is usually considered to be a subgenre of science fiction. Mm -hmm. And, and, Science fiction has written a lot about slavery, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, because 
oh, often aliens are a kind of metaphor for other races in science fiction and how or, or or colonialism and so it's such a an established subject in the genre that to have this writer from the times treated as if nobody had ever done it before was very offensive to a lot of science fiction writers yeah i mean my take on this is for what it's worth um i want this novel to exist i think it's a, it's doing important and beautiful and valuable work. And so if a white writer is the vehicle by which this novel exists, great. I'm not sure how much authority that opinion has. But at the same time, I couldn't quite suppress the observation that there are many more white allies in this book than in the Underground Railroad. And also the descriptions are a little bit less brutal. And I don't really know what to do with those observations, but it just, it was ever so slightly less wrought by pain or racked by pain than the other book and sort of holding them side by side made me queasy. Well, I think the Victor, the hero part or the narrator, part of his situation is that he's trying not to think yeah. about these things. And the whole... It has a certain relationship to the sort of hard-boiled or sort of film, hard-boiled detective novel or film noir that, um, that's probably worth going into. That is mostly, you know, a white genre, although there were African American sort of not quite hard-boiled detective writers, um, in the mid 20th century. But it, it's a genre that has to do with the fact that all of these men came back from the war and the war was supposedly a good war and the good guys won it. And yet there was this suppressed experience of the inevitable nightmare of war that all of these men were living with at the same time that they needed to sort of go back to some to this sort of great, fabulous, you know, 1950s suburban dream that everyone was supposed to get on the GI Bill. And so film noir and the hard-boiled detective novel are like the the sort of bad conscience of America coming out in this sort of slightly disreputable, pulpy genre that mostly had to do with the suffering of these white men from um from from the war and you could never hold up like if you read Raymond Chandler he's just like horribly sexist and racist so um so you know that there's not like a lot of understanding for anybody different who has a different set of sufferings or problems but but i think that i was fascinated by the way that Ben Winters used the sort of the device of this sort of hard-boiled narrative to sort of he transferred it to the to to America's bad racial conscience. So so he's trying not to think about all of the damage that he's doing to save himself and of the you know the people that he's left behind. And that is kind of a metaphor for the American experience. I love that. I mean maybe we should just quickly say that uh the the premise of this book is that uh, it's a counterfactual. It's a it's an alternate present where there are four states, the hard four, that uh, still 
haven't abolished slavery. They still have slavery. The Civil War never happened because Abraham Lincoln was assassinated um, right as it was about to break out. Everything else has sort of proceeded apace. So we've been corporatized. Um, but America is kind of this pariah nation. It's been kicked out of NATO. And there are a lot of well-meaning white people running around sort of pretending to um, be morally outraged, but, you know, actually buying the the products of of the slave states. And um, one of the, I don't want to say pleasures, but one of the really um, satisfying parts of the novel is seeing how thoroughly he follows the chains of cause and effect. And he really plays out uh, the premise in an imaginative and fascinating way. And the sort of moral heart of the book is uh, in this main character, Victor, who was a slave and escaped, but then is roped into the U.S. Marshal's scheme or or policy to return escaped slaves to their quote-unquote owners. Um, and he, of he's course— He's basically a bounty hunter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's compelled to do this because he's got this tracking device implanted in him so that his boss, this guy who's basically running him, who he never actually sees, just talks to on the phone. This guy always knows where he is, and the threat is always that he's going to return him to this slaughterhouse where he used to work that is was just a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, Jamel, what did you think of Victor? Do you think that he was... Um, did you find him compelling as a narrator, as a central figure? I I, I did, actually, um, uh, in part because I think it... So one thing I didn't find compelling enough about Victor was it wasn't that he was nonchalant about his experience as an enslaved person, but he didn't seem... He didn't feel sort of like, I don't know, terrified enough. Maybe this is just because I read this after Underground Railroad that, <laughs> that was um, yeah. influencing my perception. Um, on the same token, um, I thought Victor, I thought Victor, especially in the latter stages of the book, let me say that, especially in the latter stages of the book, when it becomes clear that his whatever immunity he possessed by virtue of being um, on the on the side of the government was vanishing was much more compelling because then you I thought you began to see sort of like the tensions in the life he was living um, come to the fore. I'll say sort of as a general point that the thing that I was most interested about in the book, and you know, obviously, this probably has to do with the fact that I'm a big history nerd. Was just the 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 alternate future imagined, and I, I do admire um, the author whose name escapes me at the moment for not Ben Winters. Ben Winters, that's right. I admire Winters for actually taking seriously the idea that slavery could persist well into the 20th century, which is not a thing I think people take seriously enough. And I think it goes um, to that essential optimism Americans have about the world. It suggests something very dark um, that you would even start with that premise. And I think it's a, I think it is a, um, uh, uh, the right premise to start with. Yeah. Well, part of the, what, can we spoil it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so part of what, um, part of the way that the plot unfurls is that there's this scandal, this information that he is possibly going to be able to expose and these, and the sort of underground airlines, which is what the, the sort of escape safe house support network is called in this novel. 
um, is trying to sort of get out there, which is that this big retail company, which is basically like Walmart, unlike, okay, well, the premise is that the free states in America do not sell products that were made in the slave states, that that only these sort of kind of shady, not too picky other nations do a lot of import-export with slave-made products. And and the free states are very, and Europe and whatever, they're very invested in the idea that they're not going to support this economy in this way. It's like sort of like this weird island sub-nation that, that exists within the United States. And so the scandal is going to be that this big Walmart-like corporation is, in fact, selling all of these products made by enslaved people, and and then at one and then Victor at one point says, "Oh, but that's not really going to make any difference. You yeah. know, people are going to be shocked and they're going to be upset, and then they're going to go, oh, but it's cheap and it's decent, and, and they're still going to buy it anyway.' And you think." Well, that is actually already happening. Yeah. Uh, more or less, you know, that, that all Mer- Americans buy lots of cheap stuff at Walmart that is made by people who live in really desperate circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me also that like these two books make the same gesture in different ways. Um, in that it's, about taking a metaphor literally. And so, so the Underground Railroad takes the railroad literally. And then this book takes the sort of shadow of slavery in the present day, literally. And it says, well, what if it wasn't just kind of like this ghost hovering over us? What if it actually continued to be a present reality in part of the country? And then this is how we would sort of rationalize our yeah. involvement with it. And then... And then, like, of course, we can see that the, we're doing the exact same thing with the more metaphorical legacy of slavery that is hovering over us now. So I thought that was like a really effective... Or the real economic exploitation that yeah. goes on now with people who are literally in another country. I mean, none of the people who live in the free states of the U.S. in that that book ever see slaves. They're like invisible. And that's a big part of because it, they live in a mediated world that has to be made invisible to because the idea that it could be seen and and uh, Uncle Tom's cabin was like the like the shocking inside video of its time. I mean, it it generated outrage by depicting, you know, the version of 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 slavery that would be acceptable to a 19th century white audience, not acceptable, but you know, that you could publish not the real thing, but still was shocking to them. And so it has to be made into this thing that is just happening somewhere else that nobody ever really looks at that's just not visible to you. Yeah. But Jamil, I really I'm dying to ask you this, because you have done so much research about the economic basis of slavery. Um, when I was writing about this book, I felt like Victor's journey from sort of suppressing the reality of his past to recognizing it was, uh, you know, that was like this, the emotional core of the novel. But then there was this whole projected history and how it would work. And 
and how the economics of it would work. And I was curious how plausible that was to you. You know, I found that actually quite plausible. I mean, I think the thing people – and this sort of requires a fundamental uh, reconfiguring of how you're thinking about slavery and and sla- the, the enslavers in particular. So in the book, right, that we get a description of an economy that is quite advanced for the most part. It is because of sanctions from international – from other countries, from um, uh, non-slave-owning countries – there, the United States is as a whole a bit technologically backwards than it otherwise would be. But this is still a description of an advanced economy um, in, in many ways. It, it sort of may be like two steps beyond the one that we currently exist in, two steps built behind rather. Um, so we think of slaveholders and of slavery as being a fundamentally pre-modern institution. But uh, recent research and kind of more recent thinking suggests that really it's better to think of slavery, of American slavery, as being an institution that was on the vanguard of global capitalism. That very much was driving the development of capitalism in the United States and worldwide um, in that in the, in the economy that grew up around slavery in the United States, you see the pioneering of uh, approaches of mechanisms of types of financialization that would be very familiar to us today. So the classic example is um, enslaved people were securitized like you would mortgages to to build to uh, generate investments for factories in the north didn't um and people i I know that Thomas Jefferson borrowed money against his slaves um that's correct uh, and that was very common so um, they were like a like a financial instrument in a way right I mean enslaved people were birth, were both labor simultaneously labor. And capital. Yeah. Um, they, they were a unique, uh, element in the system. And so if you, if you take that as your starting point, then there's no reason to think that in the absence of something that ended slavery. And again, also it's important to remember that on the eve of the Civil War, slavery was as strong as it had ever been. Um, slave as, as, slavery as an asset class in the United States was the single largest one. Um, uh, slave produced cotton was still driving global manufacturing. I mean, by any measure, the system still had quite some time left in it. So if you buy the premise that slavery was foundational to the global economy, that enslavers, slave masters, politicians who back slavery, um, financiers, all of them were innovative people um, who uh, found market opportunities where they could take them. There's no reason to think that industrialization would have actually changed much of anything. It just would have shifted the basis for slavery. It would have made um, – it would have turned enslaved people from agricultural laborers or from primarily agricultural laborers to industrial laborers to other kinds of laborers. And, you know, it's not actually that difficult to imagine an alternative history where slavery does not end in 1863 and then persist, you know, well into the 20th century, just changing along with the rest of the economy. And so I thought I found I found that element of, of Winter's um, that part of the speculative fiction to be very convincing. But he does sort of tie it to to Lincoln being assassinated sooner, which was kind of a kind of a disappointing reversion to the sort of great man hmm. theory of history. I don't know. I mean, to me, that just felt like um, a demonstration of how arbitrary our history yeah. is. And sort of it's interesting, like we see we see chains of cause and effect as sort of inevitable and we see them as shackles. They're just another type of shackle, another type of slavery. We're enslaved to what happens. And, and yet those things aren't justified 
in the same way that the shackles and cha- uh, chaining people aren't justified. They're all just sort of floating out of out of luck or chance. I don't really know where I'm going with this. Um, well, I mean, Jamel, a lot of alternate history gets really focused on like what would happen if this one person was killed or not killed or killed sooner or killed later. And um, and what do you think about that idea that that the death of one sort of f- political figure could actually cause such a major change in the history of slavery. Right. So, I mean, in the case of this book, the, the departure point is Lincoln is assassinated before taking office, and this spurs um, Congress to adopt the Crittenden Plan, which um, preserved slavery in the states where it existed um, and sort of was uh, in, in, enshrined that into the Constitution. So this, I mean, I, I know, I know, like great man theories of history are very unpopular, um, and uh, I know that, um, and this is, I mean, it's correct that we should think of historical movements as being much more complex interplays of institutions and groups at all levels of society. On the same score, it is also true that um, uh, individual people are integral. Um, individual people do actually matter. Um, the choices they make matter. And even if those choices reflect a broader institutional or sociological um, web of factors, they're still, they're still choices. And so in this case, I kind of think it does really, it would really have been a major departure point mm-hmm. for American history if Abraham Lincoln were assassinated. Um, because Abraham Lincoln uh, was sort of, I wouldn't say a singular force, but one of several singular forces um, that drove the direction of the United States in the 1860s. Um, I would say the same if like Frederick Douglass had been assassinated. So these are, these are individuals that really did make a difference. Um, and it really did matter that they were in the place they were at the time that they were. Yeah. I, one of the things that I kind of found um, interesting in this, in this alternate future is that some of the same people from our, our own historical timeline were born and had sort of similar lives like James Brown, for instance. But he has sort of this, he's an international pop star, but he won't go to the U.S. And and it, it, there's a kind of almost a, a replay or a, a variation on the anti-apartheid movements of the, of the um, 80s and 90s. And um, there's a sense that like these people were always going to be born. And so here, here's, here is, um, how their lives would have been if, you know, if Michael Jackson or whoever w- was born into this particular world. Um, whereas I, I suppose you could say that if the world had been that radically changed, we don't know that any of those people would have been born or what Martin Luther King would have done if he had lived in the world of underground airlines. What do you think about the depiction of the the sort of um, what uh, Katie mentioned before, the sort of helpers of uh, the the people who run underground airlines and their relationship to both Victor and the people that they're trying to rescue? Um, does it bear much of a resemblance to the people who did this in the 19th century? It does. Um, <laughs> the 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 Catholic. Um I believe he was Catholic, the Catholic priest who uh, was the, supposed to be leading a, a conductor, or I'm using the old terms, um, 
a flight attendant is that what it was, that what it was uh an attendant on the <laughs> underground airline yeah uh the catholic priest who was intended on the underground airline is basically like an archetype of a kind of paternalistic um uh, racist in a lot of ways uh but well-meaning and idealistic abolitionist. Um, not all were like that, um, but it's certainly true that there is th- that that the the pre- one of the predominant modes for a white abolitionist in the North was one of kind of paternalistic compassion for enslaved people as kind of diminished humans and not as full people capable of their own agency. Yeah. yeah, and we totally saw that in uh, the Underground Railroad as well with Martin and Ethel, right? So Ethel has her. I mean, the the book goes between different consciousnesses, and um, we get a few pages in the voice of Ethel, who wants to be a missionary and, and yes. sort of cradle these childlike black people um, and, and uh, nurse them when they're sick and, like, help them. She wants to be like an angel of mercy, but yeah. she sort of needs these helpless victims to sort of save. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all about her. Yeah, yeah. Did you—what did you make of Martha? Um she seemed like a pretty unadulterated hero, like someone on on the Avengers, like on the on the good team. <laughs> um, uh, well, she's you know I think that she's his way of trying to depict people who are caught up in forces that are so much bigger than themselves mm-hmm. and are asserting themselves. I mean, along with the sort of gr- the great men like Lincoln, mm-hmm. there are also these individual people who find the ability to act despite the fact that they have so much less power than than the great men i i mean i'm actually curious to hear what y'all think of of martha in the context of all of this just because she's not just someone sort of caught up in in all of this but she's also um, a white woman in this world and i think especially since last tuesday's uh, election there's been i think more conversation about what it what the relationship of um racism is to white women in particular yeah i mean that's sort of where i was going with this question because honestly i read this book after the election and martha made me feel really good like i was really happy to read about martha and then i had to interrogate that response and realize like that's not what history just bore out and that's a fantasy I mean, I don't know. It's not totally untrue. Like, there are probably people like Martha. But again, it reminded me that Ben Winters is a white man and he was able to, to you know, materialize this character without any kind of, I don't know. Um, well, novels are not really about huge social masses of people. Yeah. And so they're about individual people. And so... There are definitely people like Martha out there. And there are definitely, I mean, I don't know that the novel's that interested in Martha. It's really more interested in Victor and his divided, messed up conscience and his desire to survive and his desire and his acknowledged, his understanding that he's doing something very wrong. And then his weird relationship to his own expertise, like the... I don't, I just see Martha as just sort of the love interest. It's just kind of in there. And, and to represent the fact that, that, um, even as these crushing institutions are kind of grinding their way through their own directives, there are always people who form relationships and do this or that 
under them or around them or through them. So it's not it's not totally fatalistic. Like you're not just because you have a certain demographic does not mean you automatically believe certain things or or will behave in a certain way. And um and so you know, I, I guess she's there for that, but I think that she's not really that major of a, I mean, she, she's, she's not meant to signify, really. She's, she's, she's just... She is like, you know, in the way that this is kind of a genre novel, there has to be sort of a sort of a love interest type mm-hmm. figure. And so that's going to be her. And and in the in the hard boiled novel, there's often like an innocent woman who actually is conniving or there's a kind of sort of truly innocent woman who the hero has to decide to save or not. And so, so it's kind of, it has this sort of weird, um, I, I, I just want to say not formulaic, but sort of obligatory thing sure. that, um, I, I like Underground Railroad for, for not seeing that as necessarily obligatory. Although Cora does have love interests. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not the center of her life. And, um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I, Martha seems so forgettable to me. <laughs> I barely remember her. Um, it looks like we're running up on time. Do you guys have more that you would like to address for these two books or should we wrap it up? I don't think I have anything else to, um, to add. I do think I, I just on a plot level, I found the end of that, of, uh, of this book very unconvincing. I think I would prefer it more if they all would have, you know, <laughs> if it would have been more bleak <laughs> than this kind of surprise rescue. Um, yeah, it was sort of like off to the next caper, like mission accomplished, off to the next. Right. Yeah, yeah. And which is another aspect of it being basically like a, a a thriller or a detective story. There needs to be some kind of not it's not uplifting exactly, but there needs to be a a more sort of positive resolution of the story than Whitehead feels it's necessary for him to do. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you guys so much. I guess I'll just close by asking whether you would recommend either of these books or both of them. Yes, definitely. I would definitely recommend that. I would definitely recommend both these books. I would as well. Well, thanks so much, guys. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. And thanks for the assist, AC Valdez. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Laura Miller and Jamel Bowie, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.